the next 90 seconds, while this preview of coming attractions is playing, will all filmgoers with any degree of wit, taste, and intelligence please keep your critical remarks to yourselves, or we'll nail your tongues to the floor. Thank you. I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Welcome to Saturday School. This is our last episode of our fourth season on Asian American troublemakers. And we're ending with a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Save the best for last. Yes. So this week we're talking about Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, the 1965 film by Russ Meyer. It stars Tura Satana as Varla, (laughs) part of a trio of... Go-go dancers. Badass go-go dancers that have some goals in mind. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, go-go for a wild, wild ride with the Watusi cats. But beware, the sweetest kittens have the sharpest claws. Wild women, wild wheels, race the fastest pussy cats, and they'll beat you to death. Varla's the leader. Rosie's uh, a comrade on the pole and on the road. And uh, the third go-go girl is Billy. Blonde is kind of the one that loses the hostages. <laughs> she, she, she might run <laughs> off at any moment. She's pretend she's not afraid of Varla, but everyone should be afraid of Varla. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a weird sense of humor. Try again. I get funnier. So a movie begins with the three of them. I mean, it's a Russ Meyer movie. So Russ Meyer is known for, I think they call him like the, the nudie cuties. Um... <laughs> For instance, one of his early films is about this guy who has x-ray vision and he can see under people's clothes. I mean, he's kind of synonymous with the sexploitation genre of the time. So he begins with some go-go dancers. You're like, oh, okay, well, it's a Russ Meyer movie. And then they go on the road in the desert. Their preferred game is to, like, race their cars and go off the trails. And they run into this guy and his girlfriend and get in a bit of a competitive tussle that ends with our heroine Varla laying the lethal smackdown with her bare hands. And the rest of this movie is them meeting some hillbilly types in the desert and all the sexual and violent nuttiness that can ensue. Yeah, you would think that the rest of the movie would be about her escaping the police, but the rest of the movie is about her realizing there's money. Oh, right. There's treasure. The hillbillies might be sitting on a pot of treasure, and they're going to use their feminine assets to try to get that treasure. Too much for one man to handle. You girls a bunch of nudists, or you just... uh... So the other thing about Russ Meyer's movies is all of his actresses are very, very busty. Like, there's no other comparison in the history of cinema. Russ Meyer was obsessed with large, large breasts. So all of his stars are very, very well endowed. And that becomes their weaponry in their uh, attempt to, in this case, get the gold. And it's, it's played as shock value and as obvious lowbrow titillation. But it also becomes this, like, sign of powerful woman, like the, the stature of woman and Man, no one has a stature quite like Tura Satana in the way she carries herself and her body. Slashing, tackling, gouging, hacking, flipping, belting, smashing, and blasting. Muscle to muscle, bone to bone. 
So there is an article by Phil Chung of Yum Yum F where he calls Tura Satana the most badass Asian American woman on screen ever, which is probably true because she's probably the most badass person on screen. <laughs> not even thinking about whether she's Asian American or not. And also, Haji, the woman who plays Rosie, she is actually biracial, British and Filipina. And I would have never guessed because she has that like fake accent. Hey, don't you get enough of that at the joint? I there's an audience here. I'll give you heaps of this. Tura Satana is a mix of Filipina, Japanese, Native American, and European descent. She was born in Japan. She has a crazy life that we'll go into later. But it's interesting because if you read the Phil Chung blog post, it's framed like this is the most badass Asian American character on screen that you probably don't even know, which is probably true. Because she's not necessarily seen as one of the pioneers of Asian America. Yeah, she's not in the same category as like a Nancy Kwan or a Mako who were around the same time. Why do you think that is? Well, this is a time when Asian Americans are trying to hold on to positive images of themselves. Is this around the same time as Flower Drum Song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's shocking. I mean, like, this movie is way ahead of its time. Even <laughs> if it came out now, I would be kind of shocked. The murderous rage, lack of any kind of moral compass, but... No, I just love it. I think another issue is that she didn't make that many movies. Mm. She kind of came and went, so she never was able to solidify an identity as an actor. Yeah. She became basically like a cult favorite. Her previous roles were always as some kind of oriental stripper. Her background is in dancing, like in burlesque dances, and one of her personas as a burlesque dancer was as like a Miss Japan type of character. Mm -hmm. Because I'm just saying with Nancy Kwan is also multiracial, but she was like totally exotic to the mainstream Mm -hmm. as an Asian person. But I think it's just specifically because of this role, the one that she's most famous for, where her Asian-ness is not really front and center, that we kind of forget that she is. Yeah. I'm only asking because when I read people talking about how much they love this movie, nobody talks about how the two main leads are Asian American. Right. And that's kind of what we're trying to reclaim here. That this is a cult film within certain cult film circles, but this could also be a cult film for Asian Americans. Yeah, it's not been talked about that way. Yeah, and in the Phil Chung blog post, he had met Russ Meyer before he passed away. And Russ Meyer told him that she was really proud to be Asian, Mm. like very open about being Asian. And always a little bit disappointed that she wasn't embraced by the Asian American community. Interesting. And there's a documentary currently being made about her where they're going to interview people like John Waters, who has said that Faster Pussycat Kill Kill is like the greatest movie of all time. (laughs) (laughs) And it's narrated by Margaret Cho, and it's currently in post-production. So we can learn much more about Tura Satana, not only the behind the scenes stories of her movies, but real life which is crazier than her movies it's way crazier (laughs) like a lot of japanese americans during world war ii tura and her family or specifically her dad were taken to manzanar her mom is not of japanese descent and they were actually separated so she has that as part of her history her memory and part of her identity for anybody to have to go through that that's already pretty traumatic when she, she leaves the camps she's constantly bullied possibly because her ethnicity and then when she's 10 years old she's gang raped by five men according to legend and prosecutors, lawyers, the judges, they were all in cahoots in order to let the rapist go. And Tora never forgot that. 
And apparently she made a vow to herself to one day get revenge on these five men. And according to her, she did. She hunted all five of these men down as she entered adulthood and exacted some kind of unidentified revenge on, on them all. Yeah, remind me. Is that the story of Kill Bill? She lived Kill Bill. And then she, she was like forced to get married and she left her husband. She became a burlesque dancer. On that circuit, she was discovered by Harold Lloyd, of all people, the classic silent film star. And then the other legend of Tura Satana, which has been rebuked by some, is that she actually taught Elvis Presley how to dance. That um, Elvis saw her doing her burlesque act. They struck up a relationship. According to Tura, Elvis at some point proposed to her and she declined. But she kept the ring. She kept the ring, yeah. And she says that Elvis was like, how do you move your body this way? And then she actually taught him how to shake those hips. <laughs> the Elvis fans have debunked this theory. They looked at the chronology. They're like, yeah, there's no way this could happen. But <laughs> Tura insists that she's the one who taught Elvis how to dance. So that's also part of her lore. So she's kind of famous within certain circles. Burlesque circles, this rising rock and roll world. And then she had done some bit parts in movies, usually playing a prostitute or exotic dancer. Until Russ Meyer decided, this is actually Varla for my movie Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Yeah, and later, because she, she didn't make that many movies, Russ Meyer has said that he regrets not casting her more. But if you look at the rest of her biography, she was shot by a former lover <laughs> later. Oh and what might be the weirdest part, even though it's the most quote unquote normal part, she ended up studying nursing and becoming a nurse. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That That's the craziest part for me, where it's like, she was a nurse. She could do anything. <laughs> yeah. And then later on, like when she became a cult figure, like then she started to embrace going on the convention circuit. So she kind of passed away a hero. Look, I don't know what the hell your point is, but I don't... The point is of no return, and you've reached it. You can still climb in that kitty car and take a hike, unless you can fight better than you can drive. She is ready to kill in this movie. Yeah. She does not need weapons. She just has karate chops. But but just knowing her backstory about this like kind of vengeful past, there's a certain authenticity in this movie that she can't make this up. Also, like physically, she's so imposing in this. She's so tall. I think she's like six feet tall. She's like clad in leather, like in the desert. It just spells like I'm a scary woman that you don't want to mess with. Her boobs are scary. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, like everyone's boobs are scary in this movie, but yeah. hers in particular, I think. And I mean that as a compliment. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's how it's used in the film. But there's also legends behind the scenes, which I'm sure we'll find out more in the documentary. I don't know exactly why this would come up, but maybe they wanted her to just be professional and focus on filmmaking and not stir up any relationships with cast and crew or something. <laughs> Did you read this? I'm not sure what you're referring to. She told them, like, no, I need to have sex <laughs> at least every day. I didn't hear that. You say no sex. I say yes. And he says, well, where in the world would you find anybody out in the middle of the desert? I said, that's for me to know and you to find out. Wow. And then the other thing is that there's a young girl in the film, Linda, who's kind of kidnapped by them. And in interviews later, she says in real life, she was terrified by Tura Satana. I scared the living crap out of that girl. That dynamic in the film was real. <laughs> there's a scene when Tura's character grabs Linda. And it looks like she's really hurting her. Like, I mean, look, it looks like she's not acting. Like, she wants the actors to know also, like, don't mess with her. Yeah, yeah. So just to give people a sense of, first off, Russ Meyer's style, but just how deranged his performance is. It begins with frenetically edited images of go-go dancing. And then it cuts to the woman in their cars. 
and Tura is just laughing maniacally as she's just driving in the middle of nowhere. Just like, if there's no context to it, and you just know you're in for it, it's going to be a very, very strange ride. I mean, it's 1965. This is like the era of Sound of Music. Like, this <laughs> movie just like, shouldn't exist. A lot of Russ Meyer films, the characters are defined by their anatomy. And it never feels like Tura is defined by her boobs. She transcends that. Like, she's not reducible to kind of the most exploitable part of someone's body. Yeah, it's just part of her weaponry. Yes. I've never seen a movie like this where every line in this movie that she speaks is screamed. Like, she just screams in this entire movie. She's passed out. Passed out? Get her sobered up and ready to go. What are you going to do? Come on, Kirk. We got to find her before the old lech does. She's talked about how um, when they were preparing for the role, she asked Russ, should I play this character soft or should I play it hard? And she tried both. And Russ was like, play it hard yeah. and the result is she's just so mean and she's screaming the whole time i know but she's so charismatic oh my god yeah i just feel like everyone in the film is just going to vanquish by her mere presence everyone's going to drop dead because she's in the vicinity like she's got that kind of atomic bomb sort of presence on screen yeah like she couldn't have been cast in more movies they couldn't have handled her in 1965 so i, I actually saw her two subsequent feature films one is called Astro Zombies, which was not nearly as cool as the title promised. She plays the sort of dragon lady mob boss. She gets to shoot some people. But she just looks so bored in this movie. And then the other one is Doll Squad, which is a kind of a prototype to Charlie's Angels. Tura actually says she invited Aaron Spelling to the premiere of Doll Squad, and a few years later he created Charlie's Angels. Doll Squad is also about a gang of crime-fighting women who travel the world beating terrorists. But she's just like fourth billing or something, and you never really get a chance to see her shine the way we know she's capable of. And then, and then that was kind of it for her film career, at least until much, much later. So yeah, she didn't get a chance to... <laughs> to do more and maybe you'll be right like i don't think any other filmmaker knows how to contain her explosiveness yeah but nowadays she's seen as an influence to folks like quentin tarantino and like i said john waters roger ebert really loved this movie yeah roger ebert was one of the original he's like the critic who made russ meyer legitimate and then roger ebert wrote the script for beyond the valley of dolls which is possibly his greatest movie although i really like faster pussycat kill kill yeah it's so great to see the film that created this cult legend that so many people still don't know about, especially within the context of Asian American cinema and Asian American icons. But within that context, we could also think about this as whitewashing. If the prototype of that kind of character was an Asian American woman, or at least like a mixed race Asian American woman, we think of that prototype now as Uma Thurman. So we lost that history. And I think we need to remind ourselves that there was this possibility that we saw in 1965 that would never really had the chance to flourish and change history in a way that could have been really impactful for Asian Americans. I never try anything. I just do it. Like I don't beat clocks. Just people. Want to try me? For this season, we've picked 10 examples of Asian American troublemakers in film. But there are definitely people like Margaret Cho who are complete troublemakers in the best way in terms of challenging stereotypes and kind of expanding the idea of what we can be as people, as storytellers. There are troublemakers in every medium. And I think there's something about, like we often see Margaret Cho dressed like Turamite. Yeah, it seems like a perfect pairing for her to narrate her documentary. Yeah, really, really perfect. But let me raise another example for you. This could have been something we considered. Where does Tila Tequila fit in all of this? Oh, my goodness. Um, I don't know. She's such a complicated person. So it depends on what era you're talking about, like during the reality TV era or when she started making offensive comments online. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So let's we could stick to her, the, the reality TV era. During the reality TV era, definitely. So this actually brings up two other troublemakers I could think of. Mm-hmm. One is Bai Ling. Oh, Bai Ling. I love Bai Ling. <laughs> Who also like started off as this like legitimate actor. That maybe like Asian Americans embraced her for a minute and then she started kind of saying things that didn't quite fit our model of what we needed an Asian American woman to represent. Yeah. Especially as she started to sell her sexuality in certain ways. Yeah. And but you know, like that's she's troubling the idea of what proper Asian American femininity could be. These are people that are just like real life troublemakers, not necessarily tied to a film that we can point to. <laughs> Biling was the first celebrity I ever interviewed. When you're young and it's your first interview, you're nervous and you prepare so much. And it was a great first interview because you interview Biling and you throw all that out the door. But I think it was also like planted the seeds for you that your work doing Asian American entertainment journalism, like we could be interviewing anybody. It shouldn't just be the obvious people who are doing, quote unquote, the, the right things. Like, yeah, I think it definitely planted the seed of like interviewing a really big celebrity who's very proper, like has publicists around who can't say anything is not that interesting, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. more interesting to have a real conversation with somebody, even if they go off the rails. <laughs> That definitely forms how I approach my journalism and what types of people I like writing about, you know? (laughs) Like, we don't need... Or, I mean, it's not that we don't need... Like, we need more John Cho profiles. It just... There will be more. You know what I mean? No, I get it. Because we're like, we need crazy rich Asians, but that publicity machine is in progress. Yeah. But but who's creating the publicity machine for female pervert? Nobody. Us. (laughs) Or... Faster Pussycat Kill Kill within yeah, the context yeah. of Asian American cinema. People aren't doing that. We love people who are doing us right in the mainstream as well. It's not that we're too good for that because I think we see that as part of the process, right? Right. But as we get more mainstream access and as those movies get more mainstream help, let's not forget the quote-unquote troublemakers that are still part of the grand landscape of what being Asian American can be that won't have that mainstream Hollywood publicity engine behind them. I might throw a wrench in this right now. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so so this other person who I thought of when we were talking about Tila Tequila, somebody who is probably the most popular Asian American independent filmmaker, Ooh. maybe of all time. This guy is not claimed by any Asian American cinema project. In fact, we haven't even claimed him either. But if you go film by film in terms of pop... Chi Chin Chong? No. That J. Chandra Sekar no. guy? No those i would call mainstream this guy is mainstream too but he's all self-financing he's a documentary filmmaker and his name is dinesh d'souza oh the trump guy trump just pardoned him right? yeah famous as the scary conservative trump supporting author of such books as letters to a young conservative the enemy at home the cultural left folks like michelle malkin yes all of them dinesh d'souza made four documentaries that were huge hits amongst the extreme right film like Michael Moore Hates America, 2016 Obama's America, Hillary's America, The Secret History of the Democratic Party. He's a total conspiracy theorist spewing wild assertions to slander the left. And um, he is a troublemaker. He is a bona fide troublemaker. Yeah. Um, I think I still think the same thing. Which is? Which is that that's part of who we are as Asian Americans. I mean, it's one thing to personally evaluate whether you support what he's saying but for the purposes of something like Saturday School where we're looking at history then Dinesh D'Souza and Michelle Malkin are totally part of Asian American troublemaking history 
In fact, I feel like we underestimated them, <laughs> and that's why where we are now. Yeah, the sordid history of Asian America. And so I think talking about folks like him is also a reminder that Asian America is more than just LA, San Francisco, New York, and that there are so many other kinds of ways of being Asian America throughout the rest of the country. That includes different political possibilities. And that's something that we care about and thinking about this season as well. For every, like, Mindy Kaling, there's Mindy Kaling's brother <laughs> who tried to, like, get justice by proving that if, if he applied to medical school as a black man, that he would get into more <sighs> medical schools. You have to know that both of these things exist. We should know they exist in order to grapple with that reality. Yeah. So I think we can still say Dinesh D'Souza is possibly the most influential Asian American filmmaker of his time. Oh my gosh. But we can also say, fuck Dinesh D'Souza. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I think related to that is, I think for our listeners, they can look at any of our entries for Troublemakers this season. And you don't have to like them. You don't have to like or agree with or derive pleasure from any of their troublemaking ventures. Although, I mean, we obviously do. We pick them for a reason. Right. But to pretend they don't exist or to like cover our eyes and want to have a rosier picture of Asian American media making, I think is completely losing sight of the possibilities of Asian America. And so I think what we're trying to say between the John Mortsugus and Tura Satanas is that there is what we think is like a troublemaking that's kind of exploding our notions of gender and of possibility and stories. But, you know, on the other side, there are also troublemakers that are limiting our possibilities. We need to grapple with all of this. Yes. And it was fun to grapple with all of this. Well, we picked the ones that we liked. So <laughs> obviously it was fun. Obviously. <laughs> so thanks so much for joining us on our exploration of Asian American troublemakers. We hope you had as much fun as we did. Support the troublemakers. Keep causing trouble. Keep causing trouble. That should just be our tagline now. Yeah, keep causing trouble. <laughs> Break something. Have a happy summer. We'll be back in the fall. If you want wild living fast and if you want to end up giving your all, let me call. But the cat is living reckless, but the cat is right high. If you think that you can tame her, well, just you try. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian-American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our new website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com where you can find lecture notes and links to all the films we covered. Or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And our podcast handle is Wake Up Set School. Class dismissed. So while we're on summer break, if you feel like you need more Asian American podcasts, please check out our fellow podcasts of the Potluck Podcast Collective. From Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, to Collabcast, to First of All, to Asian Americana, to Books and Boba, Fresh Creatives. They call us Bruce. I heard there might even be a new season of the Korean Drama Podcast. Check out the website. There's something for everyone. And we'll be back soon.